0: It's a pleasure to be here, even though it's very difficult circumstances for all of us, for the country overall, but to be able to spend some time together here in Eretz Israel is a very special experience. And we have a festival coming up in a few weeks. We have Hanukkah, and everybody knows that on Hanukkah there's an obligation to light a menorah with candles that correspond to The night of Hanukkah, two candles on the second night, four candles on the fourth night, five candles on the fifth night. Everyone knows that, not just in Israel, but in New York City, if you'd ask anybody on the street, Jew or non-Jew, everyone could tell you that because everyone knows that, except for the Talmud. And according to the Talmud, there is no such obligation. And the idea that we choose to light a menorah on Hanukkah is actually a voluntary act. And according to the Gemara, the obligation of Hanukkah candles, which is certainly a severe obligation, but it only involves one candle. No menorahs. No correspondence to the night of Hanukkah. Just one candle per household per night. That's what the Gemara says. Mitzvahs Hanukkah. Ner yishu That's it. One candle. If you want to go above and beyond... You want to be from the Mahadrin, for those who really go very far. So then, still no menorah. Still, we don't have a concept of matching up to the days. But rather, near everybody in the household gets a candle. But nothing that corresponds to the nights of Hanukkah just yet. But if you want to be super-duper, extra-duper, extra-religious... So then you want to be from the Mahadran, Minha Mahadran, the best of the best. So then you can bring in a menorah. Then you can start lighting candles that correspond to the night of Hanukkah. Now how do they correspond? So here there was actually a debate in the Talmud. And we accepted the opinion of Beis Hillel that we go up 1 through 8. But there was also the opinion of Beishamai that it goes the other way. It goes eight to one. And the Gemara gives two sets of explanations for each opinion. That One opinion is that we count the days that have been so far. And that's the opinion we accept, Beishamai. And Beishamai's view is that we count how many days we have left. And the Talmud also gives an alternative explanation that we are either looking to parallel the karbonos on sukkus That's Beis opinion. opinion. There the karbonos gone and went in descending order. And why there should be any association between Hanukkah and sukkus is an interesting question. There's some theories about that. <laughs> but the opinion of Beis Hillel is, Malin beKodesh Ve'in Maridin, which literally translates means you go up in matters of Kedusha, and rather than going down, but beyond the literal translation, it's actually a surprising interpretation because, first of all, that's not what the phrase means anywhere else in the Talmud. Normally it means that if you have an item or a person that has sanctity to it, that has Kedusha, so then from that point on, they should only go to greater levels of holiness and not the other direction. It doesn't mean that if you have some kind of a number associated with something of Kedusha, that that number can only go up. That's an unusual application. And setting aside also the question of whether there is Kedusha involved here, actually, there is a statement in the Talmud that the technical term Kodesh, which represents a certain level of sanctity and treatment, actually doesn't apply to the Hanukkah candles. Even though we contradict that every night of Hanukkah when we say Hanerot Salalu shames. that's also a separate discussion. Just whether there is a status of holiness to Hanukkah candles—a lot to say about that also, but not our topic either. One way or another, the Talmud tells us that this is our conclusion: that we have these three levels, ideal level being the third one, that we correspond to the nights. And that's the view of Beis Hillel that we go up. But that's still considered to be voluntary. And we have two levels before that. However, when you open up the Shulchan Aruch, so you don't find any more three levels. And there, it's just recorded as this is what we do. We like menorahs. And the whole notion of a three-tiered system, for whatever reason, doesn't actually make it in to the Shulchan Aruch itself which is a fascinating idea and the fact that what is presented in the Talmud as voluntary has somehow made it into our practice and it's not only a mitzvah in a normal sense but this is one of the most widely observed practices and there are many people who light Hanukkah candles who don't do any other mitzvahs at all and they're all doing the extra above and beyond version they're all doing the version that the Talmud says is for the super duper extra religious mahadrim and a mahadram. So that's itself an interesting phenomenon. And how exactly that developed is what to talk about. There's some who suggest that the notion of gratitude, which is what the Hanukkah candles are meant to represent, fundamentally has to come from a voluntary place. And that the idea of being commanded to express gratitude contains somewhat of a contradiction. And therefore, it has to maintain this voluntary element to it. Even if, in practice, that gets totally forgotten. So even if, in practice, we're all treating it as an obligation. But that still comes from a place of volunteering. Because the nature of hoda of gratitude, has to come from a place of free will. And if that's the case, we can't require that this extra expression be there, even if, practically speaking, that's what ends up happening. which is a very interesting idea, and maybe you could draw parallels to a few other things. We actually have, perhaps, one other area of halacha that's like that, that was alluded to in last week's parsha, parsha's Svei We find that Yaakov Davins. Pasik says, Vayivka Bamakum Vayalensham. That Yaakov encountered the place, and the Talmud tells us that that encounter is prayer. And that apparently he started the practice of davening Mirev. And nonetheless, the Gemara says that despite that wonderful pedigree, that the great Yaakov was the author of Mirev and Yaakov was no less of a stature than his father and grandfather, than Avram and Yitzchak, nonetheless, the Talmud says, Tfilas arvis us." Tfilas arvis is, on some level, voluntary. Now, before we run and get too excited about that, it doesn't actually seem to mean that in practice, and we treat Marav as obligatory, just as we do with Shacharis and mincha. And there the Rishonim explain that we've essentially accepted it as obligatory in practice, even though it has this conceptual aspect of being a Rishus. So it's an unusual kind of system, and there are these two mitzvos that seem to have this, these two dinim that seem to have this kind of nature to them, the menorah on and Hanukkah, and mirev every night, which both of them, the Talmud telling us, are not really obligatory, but in practice, we treat them as obligatory. And when it comes to Marev, so there was a whole discussion, if Yaakov is the author of Marev, so why should we take it any less seriously than any other tefillah? Why should it have a stature that seems to put it below Shachar Semencha? And there's a lot of literature about this, trying to figure out exactly why that should be. But one suggestion is based on the language of the Zohar, where the Zohar notes that Tfilas Arvis is a is optional in that sense because there's nobody who can do it the way Yaakov did it, which perhaps doesn't mean that Yaakov is a different level than the rest of us can attain, but that it speaks really to the individuality of the of experience. And especially as it's derived from that pasuk in that context, that the prayer that's offered at night, at a time of darkness, when one feels alone and isolated, and together with God and no one else, the nature of that expression has a very special aspect to it. And that, again, maybe has to come from a voluntary place. Even if, in practice, we're all going to do it anyway. But the theory that it's rooted in a choice, in a voluntary expression of connectedness, specifically in those moments of darkness and isolation. And when you feel most alone, you call out to God, and that tefillah becomes the most special type of tefillah in its own way, and the most personal type of tefillah. So therefore, it's not something that we can be commanded, even if, functionally speaking, we treat it that way. So perhaps that's the theme. You have this idea of the hoda of Nehru's Hanukkah and you have the tefillah of Mariv. They both take place at night and they both represent a very personal relationship where, functionally speaking, we treat them as obligatory actions, but they come from a place of voluntarism. They come from a very personal connection to God that can't be treated as a commandment in the normal sense. So, that's what we do. We light the menorah, and that's considered to be the highest of the three levels. Now, there was a debate between the Rishonim as to how to understand how the levels relate to each other. Here, Tosfus and Masachar Shabbos and Davchof Aleph writes that if one is going to do this third level of corresponding to the nights, lighting three candles on the third night of Hanukkah, four candles on the fourth night, etc. So then you skip level two. The idea of having a candle for every member of the household, that's level two. Tosa says you should not do both level two and level three. Why not? What's the problem? Says the Tosa, says the re in Tosis, that if you're going to combine the levels, you're going to end up with an indecipherable message. You will not have any hacker. It's not going to be able to be perceived what's going on. Because let's say, for example, it's the third night of Hanukkah, and there are four people in the household. So you'll light 12 candles. So somebody will walk past the house, they'll see 12 candles. What does 12 candles mean? So there's six people in the house, and it's the second night of Hanukkah. It's... Fourth night, and there's three people. It's the third night, and there's four people. There's one person who's not even Jewish. What are the, what, is 12, what does 12 represent? It's not going to have any meaning. So says Tosvis, if you're going for the night correspondence, the per night count, so then you have to skip the idea of counting people because multiplying them is just going to be a hodgepodge. It's just going to be a very confusing message. But the Rambam apparently wasn't worried about this. And the Rambam's position is, after some back and forth, but the Rambam's position is that, yes, we do combine the two. And if it is, let's say, four people in the house on the third night of Hanukkah, so yes, twelve candles go up. And for whatever reason, he's apparently not afraid that there's going to be a mixed message there. So we'll have to consider that a little bit. Why should that be? Why is it that Tosfus is worried about this and the Rambam's not worried about this? It's also a historical anomaly of some sort that as far as halachic practice, there's a crisscross. So the Shulchan Aruch, which normally reflects Sevardi practice, adopts the view of Tosfus, adopts the view of the Ashkenazi Rishon here, and the Ramah, who's supposed to be there to speak up for Ashkenazi practice, so he seems to have adopted the policy of the Rambam, of the Sephardi authority. So that's unusual. And on the side of the page of the Shulchan Aruch, the Taz writes, "Zelomatsinu matzinu b'shar Makomos." This is something that we don't find anywhere else, that there should be such a crisscross. Now, there is some discussion about whether it's really accurate to say that the Ramah is really following the Rambam. Because to a certain extent it's true. So in our example before of 12 candles with third night of Hanukkah and four people. So both the Rambam and the Ramah do say that, that yes, you'll have 12 candles. But there's a pretty significant difference. Now the Rambam understands that the head of the household who would be lighting that first candle alone if he was only doing one candle per house. So he lights 12 candles when he's doing the third system. When he's combining two and three, then he'll light 12 candles. The Rama doesn't say that. The Rama says that the third system, the Mahajra and the Mahajra means that everyone lights their own menorah. So that's a significant difference in terms of format. And there are some very fancy, razzle-dazzle suggestions as to what's driving the difference. But there are some who suggest that it could be that the Ramah is actually not fully accepting the Rambam's opinion, but he's following the Rambam and Tostas. He's combining them because he's essentially following the Rambam's position of counting both systems together and having 12 candles. But he's also factoring in Tostas' question. What about the confusing message? What about the fact that 12 candles is not going to mean anything? So, therefore, as a compromise, perhaps, or as a merger, have everyone light their own menorah. so instead of seeing 12 candles in the window and no one's going to know what that means, they'll see three menorahs of four candles each in three different places, and there will be a much clearer message. So that's how some understand that it's not 100% accurate to say that the Rambam was following the Rambam's opinion. Maybe he was following both. Maybe he's combining the Rambam with the concern of Tosis. So, one way or another, what we have here is apparently a debate as to how important it is to be able to understand the message here. And that Tosa says we have to maintain this aspect of hacker; It has to be understandable to the spectator what you're doing. And the Rambam doesn't seem to be worried about that. As far as the Rambam is concerned, we can mix all the candles together, have a number that was made up of two variables that no one in the street will be able to tease apart, and we don't worry about that so much. So far, so good? Everybody with me? So what's behind, from a lambdorship perspective, from an analytical perspective, what's behind this debate? Why is it that Tosas was worried about perception, about being able to understand it? And the Rambam didn't seem worried about it. So there is a lot of literature about this, as you'd expect. And many assume that it correlates to a different question. But there's another question beneath the surface here. And that has to do with the concept of Hidr. This idea of doing a mitzvah in a beautiful fashion. So what exactly drives that? So where exactly does that come from? So we have a general principle of Hidra Mitzvah across the board, that we should try to do all mitzvot in a beautiful way. And that's derived from a pasuk that we say every morning in Az Yashir, Zekkeli Vanvehu, this is my God. Herman Wouk wrote a book by that title, but he left out the hard part, so that part's easy to translate, Zekkeli, what does Vanvehu mean? So, vanvehu, the Gemara tries to figure it out also. The Gemara has a few theories. And one theory the Gemara has in Shabbos and Gimel is vanvehu means, of the b'mitzvos. It comes from the word na, beautiful. You should do mitzvos in a beautiful way. Sefer Torah no tzitzis na, tefillin all the mitzvah objects that you have should be mohudr, should be beautiful. So, is that what we're using here? Is this Gemara of the Mahadrim and the Mahadrim by Hanukkah that you should light six candles on the sixth night of Hanukkah, is that an application of this general idea that applies to Lulav and Tefillin and Sitzus and everything else that mitzvah should be beautiful and you should have this extra enthusiasm? Is that what Mahadrin means? Hidder mitzvah, it's the same word? Or should we perhaps say that, no, that's a completely different thing. There's one rule of hiddur mitzvah that comes from Zechel Levi and Vehu that applies to the whole Torah, and Chanukah has its own concept. This Mahadrim and Mahadrim by Chanukah is not connected to that at all. If you ever go to a restaurant and you see the Hashkach on the wall, it says from the Mahadrim and the Mahadrim, so that means that the owner lights five candles on the fifth night of Chanukah because that's the only time to find that phrase. That's what Mahadrim and Mahadrim means. So this unusual phrase, is this just an extension of Hiddur mitzvah in general? Or should we say that no, it's unusual because it is different. And the Mahajra and Mahajra is not at all correlated to the general idea of having a nice lula, of a nice esra, of a nice tissus and tefillin. It's a completely separate concept. And when we talk about Mahajra and Mina Mahajra and Khanika, there's no connection to that. Everyone with me so far? So, many take this approach that this is at the center of the issue. And one way of applying it is as follows. And just as a warning, I'm going to then suggest flipping it around. But one way of applying it, for example, is a classic sefer. In my day, it was a classic sefer in yeshiva called Mishnes Yavetz, it was written by Ryakob Atzal who was the chief rabbi of Yerushalayim in the 1980s, until about 1980. And he suggested that that's the issue here. The issue is, is this the standard hiddur everywhere else, or is this special? And to illustrate the point, he basically said that the reason Tolstice is concerned with Hecker and it has to be something that we understand when we look at it, is because that is a rule of Hidra Mitzvah in general. It has to be visible and something that people can perceive. And there was a discussion, for example, when it comes to a Sefer Torah, so the writing in a Sefer Torah is supposed to be very beautiful, and we have to make underlines in the parchment so that it will be straight and nice, that the writing in the Sefer Torah will be muhudah. So does that apply also to the parshios in So that was a debate, and there were those Rishonim who, who said, no, that here, Hidra Mitzvah is meant to be appreciated, and if no one can see it, if it's the only thing that the, the only person who sees it is the sofa, and then mm-hmm. it gets put inside the tefillin and no one else looks at it until the next time the sofa checks it, so then that's not going to accomplish anything as far as hither. Hither has to be something people see. So if that's a rule in hither, so then maybe that's why Tosis takes this position. Because Tosis says, okay, is that k and is being applied here also. The rules of hither are that it has to be visible. So therefore, that's what we're worried about. So why is the Rambam not worried? So the Rambam's not worried because to him, says Revolti, this is not standard Hidr. The Hidr of Hanukkah is special and distinct and not connected to anything else. And it doesn't have to follow the rules. It has its own policy. And the fact that it doesn't have the visibility that other Hidurim require, is not necessary because this is its own concept. So that's one way to explain this dispute. So far, so good? And to prove the point a little further, Vzolti notes that there is another halacha, which we'll try to say a little bit more about a little bit later, but there's an unusual halacha when it comes to Neir's Hanukkah that also distinguishes it from other mitzvot. That when it comes to Hanukkah, you have to make a great effort to make sure that you fulfill this mitzvah. Rambam's language is, "mitzvahs Chanukah, chaviva hiad ma'od, it's a precious mitzvah. And therefore, even if you can't afford it, you have to do it anyway. So what do you do if you can't afford it? shol psachim um, You have to knock on doors and beg, you have to sell your clothes, do whatever it takes to make sure that you have what you need to light on Chanukah. So this is the Rambam's position, and it's brought in Shulchan Aruch also. But some noted that there's a nuanced difference, perhaps, in the language. But the Shulchan Aruch says, you should go begging and do whatever it takes. And take a candle. So why a candle? So in the Bir Halacha, on the bottom of the Shulchan Aruch, of Mishneh Brewer, quotes from the Chemed Moshe, that the Shulchan Aruch is assuming here that, okay, perhaps you have to go above and beyond for Nehru's Even so much so as saying that you have to beg for help if you need it. But that would only be for one candle a night because, as we started, that's the main mitzvah. But to say that you should have to go to such lengths for a hiddur, for an extra gesture, for icing on the cake, that's hard to believe. So that he understands to be the view of the Shulchan Aruch, that, okay, you have to go to great lengths, but just for one candle a night, not for the extra mahuder aspects. But the Rambam, Yor Sameach, and his commentary on the Rambam, Rameer Simcha Dvince noted that the Rambam has a plural language of Neros, and it seems to be that he's including in this obligation even that which is extra even that which is the mahadram and a mahadram, the extra candles. So the Shulchan opinion seems more understandable. Why should you have to go to such lengths for something that's not even part of the core obligation, that's going above and beyond? So he suggests to that the Rambam seems to maintain that this is not your standard hither. This isn't like getting a nicer esrog than a kosher esrog or getting nicer it's felon. This becomes a part of the mitzvah itself in a more fundamental way, and it's a reflection of the fact that the mahadran by Chanukah is fundamentally different than the hidder that we see anywhere else. So that's the gist of how Rav Jolti explains this. Make sense? Okay, I'm not so sure, because I would actually like to say the opposite. But we'll take the core of it, but I think you should switch it around. I think you have to say a little differently. That really, everyone agrees that the Hidr of Hanukkah, the Mahajan of Mahajan, or that unique phrase, is fundamentally different than Hidr everywhere else. And there's a pretty conclusive proof to that effect, as some of the Svarim point out, because the Gemara in Bhavakama, on tells us, that there's a limit to how much we expect you to extend yourself for a hiddur, for something that's just above and beyond. And that limit, at least according to one reading, is to add on a third. So quibble what that means, a third of the total, a third of what's there already, so it's either 33% or 50%, but it's maximum 50%. So if you have an rogue, a kosher rogue costs $50, And the mahudra esro costs $500, so then you're not expected to do that. Spend ten times as much to get a nicer esro. That's extreme. So you add on a third. Whatever that is, or tops 50%, but not a multiple of the original number. Now, how could you apply that to Hanukkah? When it comes to Hanukkah, even if we would take just the most basic level two, just the mahadran, just go per person, And even if there are just two people in the household, you've already doubled your costs. And certainly if you're doing Mahajran and Mina-Mahajran, and there are many people in the household, then you're doing many, many times the original cost. So that's way beyond the expectations that we normally have for Hidro Mitzvah. So it seems like an indication that there's something different here. That this doesn't really fit the rules of Hidro Mitzvah overall. So I think I have to say a little differently that really everyone agrees here that there is something special about the hiddur Mitzvah of Hanukkah, That it's not standard and does not fit into the rules of the hiddur Mitzvah that would apply to other mitzvahs. But what differentiates the Rambam and if they can share that core premise that it's all special, it's all different, So then what are they arguing about? So here's where I think we should flip it the other way. That it's actually the Rambam who holds that this is a more standard kind of hiddur. And therefore, what's the difference? The difference between the two opinions would be, we can all acknowledge it's different somehow, but how different is it? Is it completely different, a whole new concept that's nothing to do with Zekeli Van Veyhu? Or should we say that really, it's actually the same kind of idea, it's just that we have a much greater obligation to follow through with the hiddur when it comes to Hanukkah and that it's uniquely obligatory in the context of Hanukkah, even if the structure is basically the same. So if that's the question, here's where I would think it would flip. That the Rambam actually is describing what's basically a standard hiddur with a greater level of commitment. Because if the Rambam doesn't care that you can figure out the number, he's not worried about you reading the message here. So what is he prescribing? Essentially, a bigger presentation. The ikra Mitzvah is one candle. And the mahajran will be more candles, and the mahajran and mahadrin will be a lot more candles. And that's all anyone will be able to figure out. So that is not radically different from what you find elsewhere. So let's say an esrog, for example, is one mitzvah where size is a factor in the hither. So a bigger esrog would be considered more muhudr. So you have a similar thing here, that the basic mitzvah is a flame. And the mehoder mitzvah is a bigger flame, is a bigger presentation. So it's not really fundamentally different than the hiddur that you find elsewhere. The difference is in the level of commitment. So the idea that, for example, one should have to spend so much more money on the hiddur here, which everyone has to acknowledge is the case, so that's different than your standard hiddur, but the difference isn't in how it plays out, the difference is in the commitment, basically saying that yes, you'll have to spend a lot more to do this it. But otherwise, it basically matches. So that position that Rajalti had used to the proof of the Rambam's position, that one has to go begging for Hanukkah candles even for the Mahajran candles, that also speaks to the commitment. It doesn't change how the mitzvah is fulfilled. It's just saying that you have to take this so seriously that even if you need to beg and knock on people's doors, that's what has to happen. So the Rambam then would basically say this is a standard hither with a non-standard level of commitment. But TOSIS, by insisting on Hecker, insisting that it be understandable, is actually saying something different. Because the interpretation that that comes from the general rules of Hidr, I think we have to challenge that interpretation. Because everyone here, the Rambam and Tosus, they're both talking about a visible Hidder. No one's talking about lighting the candles in the closet. They're both talking about something people will see. The question is, are they able to read a message in the Hidder? That's unusual. That's something you don't find anywhere else. Imagine a parallel would be if we had such a thing by esrog. So to say that, okay, on sukkah, level one is to buy a kosher esrog, level two is a nicer esrog, and level three, you have to have an esrog that jumps up and down and sings and dances and screams out, happy sukkahs. So that would be a whole different concept. So the idea that a hiddur means not just nicer and bigger, but that there's a new thing here. You have to read a message into the mitzvah. That's unique to Hanukkah. And by insisting on that, Tosus is saying this is really a completely different kind of hiddur. So this question of just how much does it matter? Is this a hiddur about reading a message or just a hiddur about more and nicer? So what's driving that? That is the question. So what is behind that issue? How important it is? How much should we care that you can read the message in the nearest Hanukkah. What's driving that? So what could be, as some suggest, is a pretty fundamental question. And that is, here we're looking to be we're looking to publicize the miracle of Hanukkah. This is a major theme within Hanukkah. We should publicize the miracle. Pretty important question. What miracle? What miracle are we trying to publicize? It's probably worthwhile knowing if that's what it's all about, publicizing the miracle, having a whole event in honor of awareness and never getting around to telling people what they need to be aware of. So what are we trying to publicize? Sorry? So that's actually a third thing, perhaps. But that's in the name. It's true, it's definitely significant, but there's actually two other choices. So it even heightens the fact. Sorry? So the oil and military victory would seem to be the two choices. So what do we say in al Hanisim? Only the military victory. Right? So that's pretty significant. So I think if you'd ask, especially, let's say, children in school or those people in New York City who know about the menorah, they'll tell you there's a whole story with the oil wasn't supposed to last eight days, it wasn't supposed to last one day, and it lasted eight days. That's the miracle. But if you look to al Hanisim which is very significant because that is our main vehicle for expressing what we are grateful for on Hanukkah. So three times a day in Shmon and however many times we bench, so we use this to say what we are thankful for, and there isn't a word there about the miracle of the oil. It's all about the military victory. So that would certainly give you the impression that that's the focus, maybe even the exclusive focus. So it could be some suggest, that that's the issue here, that the Rambam is indeed focused on the military victory as the miracle. And therefore, yes, there is some kind of a input that comes from the days, but that's, at the end of the day, not really what we care about. So whether you can count and perceive this message, that's not important to the Rambam. It's, we're just putting a candle there to thank God for this military victory. And you want to be mohudder, and mohudder, and so put a bigger candle, put more candles. But we don't really care so much about this message because it's really about the military victory. While Tosus seems to feel that the issue is the miracle of the oil, and that this whole progression of lasting one day, two days, three days, eight days, is crucial to what we are transmitting here. And therefore, that indeed should be perceptible. So that question of perception becomes significant. Hi. Why should that be the tool? It's an interesting question. Uh, Well, you think, according to the Rambam, you're saying, if that's... uh, If we're interpreting the Rambam that way. Well, we were saying that, that that's around this, but either way, it's a good question. Why should the candles... Sell? So So it's an interesting question to explore. I never thought of it that much, the question of whether the candles are specifically meant to imitate the candles of the Beis HaMikdash, which brings up other questions. For example, how important is the Shaman Zayas aspect? which is considered a hiddur probably of the more standard kind. So we talk about the and vehu. so it seems that whether or not mahadran and mahadran is part of that, it does have a role in other ways. So the idea of having oil that burns with a nice flame might be a reflection of that. It's an interesting question whether having a nice menorah is a fulfillment of any kind of hiddur mitzvah. Many people clearly think that it is They spend a lot of money on that. I got married on a Hanukkah because I got a lot of presents of nice menorahs. So the aspect of Hidr there is actually a little bit questionable, a little bit surprising, because it's not clear that that actually is the tool of the mitzvah. could be that just the candle is the tool of the mitzvah and the menorah is holding the candle. So it's actually an interesting question whether there is even the concept of Hidr mitzvah in the menorah itself. But still, we want to support the Judaic dealers, so keep buying them. But whether that's actually a Hidr mitzvah is itself an interesting discussion. Hi. So when I came here, we've been doing it with, with oil, but I feel like oil is not like you can't there's no like better oil or worse. Maybe I'm wrong, maybe I don't know, but I feel like oil is not like, oh, this is a most beautiful oil, or going to do not a the oil like it's oil. Well, there are there are distinctions actually that the Gamari draws between the flames that come from different kinds of oil. There is an assumption that different oils produce stronger flames. That's actually how is a separate discussion itself, how all of Chanukah gets into the Talmud. So Chanukah is not mentioned in the Mishnah too much, a couple of tangential references in other places, but essentially it doesn't have its own Mishnah for whatever reason. That's perhaps to preserve some extra mystery, or Huttner suggested that Hanukkah is the Chag of Torah Shevaal it's the oral Torah in the real sense that even when the Mishnah was written down, still didn't tell us the rules of Hanukkah. So the reason we get it in the Gemara seems like a complete tangent. It's because the second parak of Shabbos, which talks about what oils are good and what oils are bad for Shabbos candles, then starts veering off into Hanukkah, and then all of the Hanukkah Sugyas come out of that. So there is an assumption that there are different qualities. But what Simcha is bringing up, perhaps, is that it's also an interesting question if one assumes that there is a hither, there is something better to oil than candles, which there are other aspects to consider, so it's not the only fact. You're just talking about it theoretically for a second. But what drives that hither? Is the hither because it looks nicer, because the flame is considered to be stronger, in which case you may have alternatives. It's, okay, I have great candles that are able to generate a beautiful flame. It's not an anymore. one. Many do assume that way. But perhaps... There is an aspect that the Hidr is not necessarily because of the effect, but it's because we are more closely hewing to what was done in the Beis Amikdash and using that type of candle, that type of light rather. So that's itself a whole discussion and Simcha is alluding to that, that when we light, are we, it's an interesting hakir in general, it'll be a little bit beyond our time to so go into it too much more, but are we lighting candles because we are trying to evoke the candle trying to evoke the flame of the base of mikdash, or are we lighting maybe candles because that's a good way to call attention to something at night and that's a good way to publicize something. So is it the functionality of the candle that is the basis of this mitzvah, in which case it doesn't have to necessarily tie into the history specifically or are we trying to call to mind more directly that nice? And That's probably behind your question a little bit. So so in that case, an aspect of the of then? Or is it more an aspect of the human? And then, then could throw that in the list of why it's so except that it applies before also, so it's not tied into the korban. Right. right. So it's not something that's only enacted in that context. But, you know, once it's there, does it also bring this to mind? Perhaps. Couldn't hurt. But it was wasn't enacted for that reason. Although the connection to the mikdash is also significant. And that's also an interesting point because Rav Shekhtar discusses in a Sefer that, and uh, this is going to actually maybe get us out a little bit beyond our time limits, but the question of the justification for Hanukkah is a little bit an issue because we have a prohibition the Torah of Baal Tosef, so it's not clear how we're able to add on extra things. So when it comes to prohibitions that protect the Torah, so that might be included in other directives of making a safeguard for the Torah. But when it comes to extra holidays, so what gives us the right to do that? So there are those who suggest, and R'shechta discusses this in a Sefer, that that which is rooted in the Gula, and that which is rooted in continuing the process of redemption, is already a part of the existing Torah, and it's just a fulfillment of that. So the extent to which Hanukkah and you mentioned the Chanukah sabbai; its extension to which it's about the base hamikdash and about the future base hamikdash may be crucial to its existence. So, if it serves a role as the echel hamikdash, also as a bridge to the future base hamikdash from the past base hamikdash, that might be pretty significant to its identity, even though it's not why it's there in the first place. So it also by it it was also report,
1: correct. It was right. Also so, online, you know,
0: the the correct. So the assumption that it's all part of it, and also. Yom Ha'atzmuth fits the same theme, right? Yes. So that's also a part of the idea that anything that connects to that maybe has its own inherent justification. So essentially, I don't want to run into my time, but just to try to bring some focus here. So the question of, are we commemorating the war or are we commemorating the miracle of the oil? So that seems to be at issue here even though it does seem like it shouldn't be much of a contest, especially because of Ahanisin, and also simply what is more or less significant, that the war is why we're still here today, so we are grateful for that. The miracle of the oil, as impressive as it may be, doesn't seem to affect our lives today, or perhaps even then, was the whole discussion among the commentaries of Pnei Yeshua and others that it's not clear why we even needed that miracle in the first place? That there is a principle, Tuma Hutra B'Tzibur, that Tuma can be tolerated when it's for the purposes of the whole Tzibur of the whole nation. So it's not clear we even needed to have pure oil. So the miracle, even then, it's not obvious what its purpose was. So there are a few suggestions to note, but and time being is limited, but there are those who suggest, Maral of Prague notes that really they're meant to work together, that it's clear that the miracle that is much more significant is that of the war, and the fact that we were victorious at that time is certainly the center of our attention. But there is a risk, that following that victory that the people could have thought they could have thought okay, we pulled this off on our own and we don't need any divine help for this. So to counteract that following this victory what happens? There is an event which is not really crucial but is undeniably miraculous. It's essentially a magic show. And what's the purpose of that magic show? This is God's signature. Saying that, Mazal Tov on your victory. And I want you to know that I was there all along. I want you to know that this only happened because I was with you. So this ongoing theme that we try to keep in mind over the course of Hanukkah is particularly crucial. And we noted before the position of the Rambam and the Shulchan Aruch that we have to go above and beyond to perform the mitzvah of Hanukkah. Even though, when it comes to Torah mitzvos, we have a limit to how much we're expected to spend. Tefillin, lulav, esrog these are mitzvahs from the Torah. And the Gemara says, the way the Gemara is interpreted, we only have to spend 20% of our money on that. And if we don't have enough beyond that, then we're exempt. So how come for a rabbinic mitzvah like Hanukkah, we have to go begging? So on the side of the page of the Rambam, the Magimishnu explains that this is because of Persumim Nisa, because of the idea of publicizing the miracle. But that doesn't really answer the question. It just recategorizes the question. Okay, so we'll give it a different name, but it's still a rabbinic mitzvah, and it's still not clear why do we have to go to such great lengths when Torah mitzvahs don't require us to go to such great lengths. So Soloveitchik suggested, as notes in his name, that the reason Pursume Nisa requires such extra above and beyond commitment is that it is essentially a type of tefillah. That it is basically a statement that we've received miracles in the past, and we're grateful for that, and we're hoping for more miracles in the future. So if that's the idea, I've noted, that we're essentially asking God to go out of his budget, so to speak, normally he runs the world, through the laws of physics, and we're saying go above and beyond. So it's a little incongruous if we're asking, okay, we want miraculous treatment. And to make that point, we have allocated exactly 19.9% of our budget, not a cent over. So if indeed we we want to say, please give us more above and beyond treatment, so then we also need to go above and beyond in order to express that. And that idea that the Persimmonists of Hanukkah is a tefillah for continued miracles is, I think, a theme that resonates very strongly with us right now at this time of Mohammed and this time of war, where we recognize again that a Baruch Hu's presence with us is so fundamental, even when it's not obvious, even when we don't necessarily see it all the time. But to have it held up as a symbol is particularly crucial, especially now. And one of the major themes of the miracle of Hanukkah that is expressed in El and therefore can be counted as crucial, is the notion of Rabban ma'atim, that the small, the few were able to prevail over the many, which some suggest, by the way, is alluded to in this week's parsha when Yaakov is left alone because he goes back for a small jug, which some understand is the original jug that turns into the nase of Hanukkah. And the Apostle says, Yaakov levado, that he is forced into a conflict when he's alone and seemingly the weaker party. So the miracle of Hanukkah includes this detail crucially of Rabban B'ad And now, once again, we find ourselves needing to ask that. And it's an ironic twist, because for whatever reason, among the many misunderstandings and distortions of the world's perception, we believe that the Israeli army today is the rabbin, and the enemy is the Ma'atim. But we know it to be quite the opposite in many, many ways. But especially because of this, because nations of the world have joined together to create the reality that actually we are again the Ma'atim and the enemy is the Rabbin. and therefore we tap into that miracle and we ask once again that just like in the past, the Kaddish Baruch Hu delivered the rabbin the Ma'atim and with his help allowed the Ma'atim to prevail so we are mafarsing this miracle we publicize this miracle and we do whatever we can to make sure that that happens even when it's challenging and even when it requires that extra reminder in the dark, just like Chilas Arvis, which takes place in that moment of isolation and feeling of turning to God by oneself. And we ask him once again that he should bring about a miracle and that we should once again find that the ma'atim prevail and that we should experience Nisim and Yeshuos in the month of Kislev. And as we noted, that in practice, that mitzvah is crucial and must be fulfilled, despite the fact that the Gemara says that it's voluntary, and that that's true as well about Marav, which is not functionally Hashanah any longer. So I'm not allowed to go beyond Marav time, so I will stop here. But I thank you so much for coming and for sharing a few moments on this important theme. Yeah.